How is limiting access to information harmful? Today, I speak with Ian Scoble. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Alchidiak, and today I'm speaking with Ian Scoble. Ian Scoble is Bartlett Chair in Free Speech and Expression, Professor of Philosophy and Coordinator of Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Bridgewater State University. Ian, today our question is, how is limiting access to information harmful? Well, to think that limiting access to information wouldn't be harmful, you'd have to think that you already had all the answers. Um, and this, this is the mistake that so many people make. If, if you already knew everything, then you wouldn't need any new information. But of course, the reality is nobody's actually in that position. So we're always uh, interested in learning more things. I don't just mean me personally, but people in general need to learn new things. That's how we make progress in technology and science. It's how we make progress in uh, things like uh, social pro- you know, social progress, things like that. Um, we learn new things about the world and it helps us live better lives. So in a, in a sense, you know, the idea that we need new information is always true. And so if you cut off sources of information, then you're necessarily stifling inquiry and stifling the ability both of individual people and of society as a whole to to learn and progress. Uh, So in terms of what we're talking about today, uh, we want to talk a little bit about book banning and we want to talk a little bit about free speech, um, especially on campus. Uh, To start off our conversation on uh, the banning of books, can you give us an overview of what book banning actually is and some instances of it happening today? Um, Is it really a problem or is it just something that people like to bring up when they're talking about free speech? There's dimensions of book banning. I mean, there was... Examples, you know, like in the Middle Ages, for instance, when books would literally be banned, and you know, you you could um, go to prison or be executed if you were printing a certain kind of book that was on the forbidden books list. And today, it's unlikely that you'd be sent to the prison or to the you know the death chamber for printing a book or something. When we talk about book banning today, we're more usually talking about things like books being removed from libraries or being prohibited from being part of a school curriculum or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And while that's not as bad as the old school version of book banning, it's still troublesome from the point of view of knowledge acquisition. I mean, the whole point of having libraries so that people can go and seek out information. Um, So if you don't permit books to be in certain libraries, then people who might be interested in whatever that book is about, for better or worse, aren't going to be able to get that information. So you're you're cutting off a learning opportunity for people when when you remove books from libraries. Same thing with removing books from, from school curricula. And I understand that to some extent, uh, school boards have to have some degree of latitude in what counts as part of the curriculum. Um, but when this takes the form of uh, just, you know, blanket statements as to what teachers can and can't talk about, that seems like it's contrary to the point of ha- having education in the first place. Um, uh, if you don't trust the teachers to be delivering the education, then they probably shouldn't be teachers in the first place. Um, if you think, yeah, this person would be a good teacher, then you probably think that they know what they're talking about and have something to contribute 
uh, to what the students are going to learn. It wasn't that long ago. I, I mentioned the Middle Ages before, but it, of course, it wasn't that long ago that you could get in trouble for publishing certain things. Um, in, you know, bef- before the Civil War in the American South, uh, pamphlets promoting abolitionism uh, f- were banned, and you could not uh, either buy, sell, or possess them. Um, and so there was a case where you could go to jail for having literature that said the wrong things um, within much more recent memory than the Middle Ages. Um, of course, that seems like it's contrary to the uh, First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, but uh, that doesn't stop people uh, half the time from doing these sorts of things. It's always a question uh why are you banning this thing? And in the case of, you know, Confederate states banning abolitionist pamphlets, the answer is perfectly obvious. Abolitionist pamphlets were making a case that something that was very important to the Confederacy should be abolished. So they didn't want anybody to talk about that. But that gets to the real heart of the matter. If you're banning books, if you're suppressing uh, the dispensing of information, it seems like it's always because you're afraid of having people talk about this idea. You don't want anybody to talk about such and such an idea. And that doesn't usually work out very well. So in your answer here, you did talk about some historical uh, examples. It might be easy to say that this is sort of a modern problem because of overzealous virtue signaling or something like that. But the truth is it's been a problem throughout history, as you mentioned. Um, I want to focus on one instance of this, and you wrote that you wrote an article about on book banning in the Scottish Enlightenment concerning David Hume. I'm a big Hume fan, so I want to talk about it. Sure. (laughs) Um, So uh, tell us a little bit about what happened there. Well, you know, even in the 18th century, they still had that list of banned books, um, which seems surprising when you think about the, you know, high enlightenment period, you thought they would have gotten past that by then, but they hadn't, there was still these, this list of banned books. And so, you know, Hume, and the book that I wrote about there was really an epistemology treatise. And so you wouldn't think this would even get anybody in trouble. But of course, um, once you start thinking about epistemology the way Hume encourages people to think about principles of knowledge, then it leads to uh, more fundamental questions about A, the nature of science itself, and B, the nature of religion itself. And both of those things are the sort of things that could make people in authority worried. Uh, and and that's, the, that's when the censorious impulse kicks in. If people in authority are worried about what you have to say, that's when you're going to have to start worrying about, uh, are they going to try to shut this down? Are they going to try to ban the book? Um, and you know, one, one ramification of Hume's theory um, is, is that uh, we can't have any coherent idea of God. So that's the sort of thing that religious authorities would find threatening. It's exactly the sort of thing that any inquiring mind is going to want to talk about and wrestle with. These are challenging questions and important issues. And so people who care about thinking like to think about things like that. And it seems like it's an important question. But you can see why the people in authority might say, oh, no, no, we don't want anybody talking about those issues. That's too dangerous to talk about. Um, So if that's one possible uh, consequence of Hume's theory, better just not let people read that book. Mm-hmm. And with Hume in that particular uh, you know, instance, they didn't just ban his books, they kind of canceled the guy, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. use modern parlance. Like, <laughs> they canceled it pretty heavily. He couldn't really get a job in a university, it's, um, all of because of what he wrote and what he talked about. It's true. Um, his, his denial of um, 
uh, you know, conventional notions of God and religion did not make him a, a really popular guy at the time. Although, you know, later generations uh, find his philosophical works to be immensely rewarding, highly influential. Uh, also, his history works are highly regarded um, as, as well. Um, but yeah, at the time, he was just making all the wrong sorts of enemies. Uh, so I want to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in the minds of those who want to ban books. So in the case of Hume's, uh, ideas were deemed to be dangerous to the entirety of society. Like, what does that even mean? How could that be? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, by the by the middle of the 18th century, it's not like you would be burned at the stake for denying the existence of God. But they still took religion very seriously as a cornerstone of civilized society. So if, if you if you said, no, no, I'm, I'm an atheist, there's no such thing as God, religion is all nonsense, they wouldn't necessarily arrest you or put you to death or anything like they would have a couple hundred years earlier, but it was definitely considered to be... Um, uh, you know, morally corrupt, or, or, or you know, you know, threatening to the order of society, or something, something like that. So, at best, you could hope to be regarded as some sort of social pariah, just someone who's in really bad taste, beyond the pale. Let's never talk to this guy, which is why, as you put it, he kind of got himself canceled. Um, and I guess he's just fortunate that he hadn't been born 200 years earlier, in which case they would have just, uh, you know, cut to the chase and put him to death real quick. Um, so, yeah, and, and, you know, these things evolve over time. You know, 100 years after Hume, um, then you, you you might not even uh, necessarily find yourself canceled. Um, so, you know, today people get their own podcasts if they want to promote those sorts of views. But in the in the middle of the 18th century, it was uh, just accepted enough that you wouldn't get killed, but still generally frowned upon uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, is, is what this guy saying going to undermine the fabric of society? You know, he, he's saying that there's no such thing as morality or God and that's, wow, that's dangerous. So again, if you're one of the authorities, so much easier to just not let people read the books. So I'm actually going to take a second to read a quote that you had in the article um, about the, the forcefulness of Hume's argument. So when we run over libraries persuaded of these principles, what havoc must we make if we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Um, I just wanted to read this whole thing because I was really taken by that quote. I think it's really great. Um, what can we take away from that particular passage uh, and what we're talking about these days when it comes to banning books or, or restricting freedom of speech? I think his claim there that it should be consigned to the flames, it's a claim that's being made not from a position of authority. So I think he's speaking sort of you know, hyperbolically to say that things like that, since they literally have no coherent meaning, then they have no actual value in terms of anybody's scholarly project. In other words, he's developed this whole set of criteria for thinking about idea formation on which the two things you just described are the only things that could possibly be a coherent idea. So therefore, 
a lot of times we're just sort of mouthing empty words. And so when we talk about things that we don't know what we're talking about, we can't possibly be advancing knowledge. So his position is that work that's not attentive to these distinctions is literally meaningless and therefore useless. So I, I, I took the consign it to the flames to be a kind of rhetorical flourish. Since he wasn't in a position of power, uh, he couldn't literally consign anything to the flames. Uh, people have pointed out the irony, perhaps, of someone who himself found his books being censored, making uh, this you know hyperbolic statement, which seems like he's also saying certain things should be gotten rid of. I don't really think the context supports that interpretation of what he's saying. I think it's just a strong way of saying, look, this whole bunch of stuff is all nonsense. And he means literal nonsense. Because the way he understands idea formation is that we can only form new ideas by making logical connections about things that we understand through sense perception. So if it's not something that we can get the basis of from sense perception and then through reason deduction make changes to and come up with new things that way, then it can't literally mean anything at all. So for example, no one's ever seen a blue polar bear, but we can think about blue polar bears because we do have direct sensory experience of polar bears and of blue things. So even though there's no blue polar bears for real, that's something that we can imagine. And the concept has meaning because we can simply in our minds transpose blueness because we know what it's like for a thing to be blue and just transfer that onto this creature that's ordinarily not blue. So we can do that in our minds. But if I asked you to think about a round square, you couldn't do it at all. Um, because you've seen round things and you've seen squares, but the transposition doesn't work the same way, right? So you can easily imagine a white thing becoming a blue thing, but you can't even form a coherent mental picture of a square thing being round. Right. And so if we talk about blue polar bears, we're talking about, well, that's like a unicorn. It's something that doesn't exist, but we can certainly talk about it. But we can't even talk about round squares. I can use the, those two words together in a sentence, but it doesn't, there's no meaning attached to that expression. Um, it's, it's literally an impossibility in, in a way that things that don't actually exist, but we can still talk about. So we can talk about blue polar bears, we can talk about unicorns, and we know what we're all talking about, even though those things aren't real. But we can't even have a conversation about the round squares. That's the sort of thing he's talking about. And, and now I think that's uncontroversially true. Hume thinks, and this is of course more controversial, that scientific concepts like causation are like that. And so scientists who are too quick to talk about causal relations are almost committing the same sort of mistake. And Hume thinks that the concept of God is also like that. And so people who talk about that literally aren't saying anything coherent at all. So that's, mm -hmm. that's where he's going with that. And that's why his work, and this is what struck me as odd, you know, what I first encountered as a college student as a um, you know text in epistemological theory. Why it occurred to me? Well, why would this agitate the censors so badly? But when you look at it, you know what what his theory of knowledge ultimately does is undermine fundamental conventions in both science and religion. So it's not hard to see why the authorities would lose their minds over this sort of thing. 
to bring the conversation a bit more uh, back to modern times, um, well, if you Google if you Google the the uh, concept of book burning, a lot of uh, book burning, book banning. <laughs> I'm going back in time again <laughs> um, of book banning. Um, a lot of the, the information that pops up is uh, political. It's very like you know the right is very upset that the left is is banning this book, or the left is very upset about the right banning some book, which um, used to be more of a popular stance. Uh, maybe perhaps a few decades ago, I think it sort of switched over <laughs> from one side of the political spectrum to the other. So as much as each side says that it is a problem with the people on the other side, historically speaking, as I was just saying, people on the left have advocated for banning books and so have people on the right. The funny thing is when one side is doing it, the other side demonizes them as though they would never do such a horrendous thing because they're the ones who really believe in freedom. Um, how is it that something like book banning could be used as a tool by people from across the political spectrum. It's sort of something that they all agree on, but at different times. Yeah. It, it's actually not unlike many other things in politics where people sort themselves out in an almost tribal way and they don't mind power when it's deployed for their tribe. And they only get upset when the opposing tribe has power. And, and people persistently get this wrong. Um, you, you know, people think when when the when the, their party holds the presidency for example they're in favor of strong executive power but when it's the other party that occupies the presidency all of a sudden everybody's a weak executive federalist um so people don't understand that if you think it's okay when the president's on your team gets extraordinary executive power that you know, at some point the other team is going to get the presidency, and then that person's going to have these extraordinary executive powers too, and you're not going to like that one bit. Yet people continually get this wrong and always wish for higher levels of power when their guys are in power, and then they get mad about it when the other team gets power. So it's just so book banning is just ex the same example of that. You know, if a bunch of conservatives control the school board, then they'll want to ban books that liberals will get upset that they're not there anymore. But if liberals were in charge of the school board, they'd be getting they'd be molding the curriculum in ways that would annoy the conservatives. So it, neither of them is sort of getting the fundamental point that reducing the amount of times the amount of instances in which people can exercise that kind of power is the safest thing for everybody. So a general rule that says you're not supposed to ban books at all is much better for everybody than simply waiting for the pendulum to swing back and forth from right to left. Um, and, you know, it, the, whether you think, uh, you know, censorship or, or uh, government restrictions on speech are a real problem for the left or for the right largely depends on where you live, right? If you, if you live in California or Massachusetts, then you might think that, um, you know, only cranky conservatives care about free speech because all the people who are making the rules are people who see things my way. But if you live in Texas or Florida or South Carolina, um, you might think something like, you know, only, only a lefty would care about free speech because all the right thinking people who are in charge down here um, are making, you know, the right sorts of judgments, the right sorts of rules about everything. And, but what neither side gets is that it's the principle 
majorities get to silence unpopular minorities. If that's the principle, everybody's going to get screwed all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so on that, do you think governments should make laws that ban books that ban book bans. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. Um, recently, Illinois became the first state in the United States to prohibit a book bans. Is this a good idea or is it kind of oxymoronic? <laughs> it's almost oxymoronic. Uh, I mean, I have, I mean, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but my reading of the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution already says that. Um, mm. But that that doesn't mean that it's not necessarily worthwhile to reiterate it. Um, you know, if because like every other constitutional provision, uh, there's always somebody with a different way to interpret it. And you know, whatever the most recent court decision was dictates the content of how to interpret that law. So if the you know if you want to put on some extra legislation saying no seriously you can't ban books then i i well it offends me in some conceptual way it's probably not a bad idea overall okay uh now i really want to delve into book banning as part of the larger conversation surrounding free speech and censorship do you think um, banning books needs to be a bigger part of the conversation when it comes to talking about academic freedom to uh, freedom of speech on campus and to topics like that absolutely I mean book banning doesn't really happen as much at the college level as it does for the k-12 level because mm -hmm. uh, college professors are generally assumed to have a large degree of autonomy in curricular design um, so the books that I think are appropriate for this class or this class, generally speaking, I don't get second guessed about those choices. But if you're a 10th grade teacher, um, it's true that you don't have the same level of autonomy. Uh, you are answerable to the school board ultimately uh, for how you're delivering what's essentially a standardized curriculum, or at least a curriculum with more guidelines. Um, so I, I worry a little bit about people being overzealous with micromanaging mm -hmm. the 10th grade teachers. Um, but at some point, I understand why there's going to have to be some top-down restrictions on what's in the curriculum there. At the college level, like I said, nobody tells me what books to order or not order. Um, although I, I understand that in some states, they're passing legislation that says you're not allowed to do this or that sort of thing. So, you know, I think that if we're going to talk about academic freedom, you know, in the university sense, um, we have to be wary about those states in which they are attempting to micromanage uh, course content, uh, you know, in, in, in university education. I think it's completely contradictory to the spirit of higher ed to say you can't read such and such a book or you can't teach a course about such and such a book. Um, the, um, you know, and for one thing, there, there's this fundamental confusion that if I'm uh, teaching a book, that I'm therefore endorsing the book. And that's not even true at all. I mean, I often teach books that contain things that I think are wrong, but that's, so the fact that I'm teaching it doesn't mean that I'm endorsing it. It could be that I, it, it represents one side of a debate that I want my students to see. So I might have a bunch of liberal readings and then some fascist readings. So that doesn't make me a fascist, but I want my students, I want my students to read Mussolini. 
um, to see what his argument is and to see mm-hmm. to what extent liberalism has or doesn't have a good answer to the sorts of things Mussolini says. So I'm going to teach the Mussolini essay, but that doesn't mean that I'm endorsing fascism. So if you say, no, no, you can't even teach that essay at all, then you're really hampering my ability to promote liberal values, right? Even if mm-hmm. my point in show in con- ca- counterposing Mussolini's writings with liberal writings is ultimately in the hopes that the students will come away more liberal than they are fascist. You're actually getting in the way of my trying to do that if you tell me I'm not allowed to teach the the fascist writings. So I, I think people often mix, mistake that. Like if you're teaching it, you must be endorsing it in some way, and that's that's just a mistake. That's that's right, and I, I'm gonna we're gonna delve a little bit after the break more into um, you know free speech on campus and, and academic freedom. Uh, before we move on to that, before we go to our break, I just want to sort of clarify um, the elementary school portion of the conversation. A lot of the conversation on book banning at the moment is related to books being pulled from library shelves in elementary schools because the ideas or the content is just a little too much for children, according to those pulling those books. Um, like. I just want to expand a little bit more on what your thoughts are on that kind of ban- book banning and how we're supposed to determine the right kind the right people who are, who make those determinations basically. I would defer to the librarians um, as mm-hmm. opposed to legislators or, or even school board members. It's one thing to say that because it's the local public school, then curriculum design is in some way answerable to the school board or to the state board of education or whatever. Uh, and But that's about the content of classroom education. But then as to what's in the library, that doesn't map on 100% to what's being taught in the classroom. And it might be advantageous to have things in the school library that aren't necessarily fully connected to the actual prescribed curriculum in, 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 in the classes. Because this way it gives students another thing to think about, another opportunity, uh, a way to maybe learn something different from what's going on in the classroom. And, uh, you know, if you're hoping that students will become independent thinkers and learn to evaluate evidence and make up their own minds about things, it's probably good if they have access to some information that's maybe not exactly like what they're learning in the classroom. So while I understand the need for some oversight of in-class curriculum, um, I'd, I'd be much more worried about restricting what's in the school library. And I, I'd, I'd want those decisions, generally speaking, uh, left to the librarians. I think that's a great place to take a break. When we get back, I, I want to talk a little bit more about freedom of speech in the university and how it ties into all our larger conversation that we've been having. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Vincent Geloso, and Joe Aragona. Remember to follow us on Facebook and X, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. Um, now, at this half of the conversation, we're going to move on to freedom of speech in the university. And as you mentioned earlier, in the, you did say that it's not really uh, as big of a, an issue, book banning in university libraries. Uh, but I can see the relation between uh, free speech on campus and the banning of books. Not allowing for free speech on campus allows for 
a growth of censorship. And that's really what we're talking about. Uh, the bottom, like the foundation of what we're talking about today is the idea of censorship, uh, much like the type of censorship that restrains thought experiments through book banning. Uh, would you agree with that? Sure. And, uh, you know, th- th- there's definitely problems about uh, campus free speech. And while there's not necessarily the explicit kind of book banning, you know, we do have instances where, you know, angry mobs of students don't permit a, a speaker to give a talk that that speaker's been invited to give. You know, speakers speakers getting shouted down, that sort of thing. Um, and now, what's interesting about that is that it's it's a kind of censorship, but it doesn't come from the authorities. It's coming neither from the university administration nor from the government, but rather from a mob. Um, but the principle of free inquiry and and, and freedom of speech should protect a speaker against the mob just as much as it protects against you know the actual authorities um, so your your rights can be violated both by governments but also by individuals who are not government actors so if you know from if a, a mob of people shuts down the speech uh, that's just as bad from the point of view of people who wanted to hear the speech as it is if the government shut it down um, so I think university rules um, have to be understood in such a way as to permit, uh, you know, if you've been invited to give a talk, then that talk has, has to go on. Of course, you know, if the students want to be outside the building holding up protest banners or whatever, then of course that's totally fine. Um, but they can't disrupt the speech itself and stop you from giving the speech or stop other people who want to hear the speech from hearing the speech. Um, so part of it is a larger culture of free speech that's uh, fallen into disfavor. Um, so even if my administration here would never think of canceling a talk, um, I can imagine a mob uh, being riled up to protest the talk to the point where they were actually forcing the talk to be canceled. And that's a failure of the culture of free speech as, as opposed to it being a problem with the government. Um, so I, I worry about that a, a bit. And, you know, people think, too, well, that only happens with, you know, left-wing mobs shutting down conservative speakers. But again, you know, there are cases in South Carolina or Idaho or Florida or wherever where it's the right that's trying to prevent the discussion of certain topics that are more favorable to the left. So as we were saying earlier, this is the sort of thing that goes in both directions, and it's wrong in both directions. Um, and I want to move on to how you can deal with disagreements on campus uh, rather than shouting somebody down or stopping a conversation. You wrote a, a really excellent um, article called Free Speech and the Function of a University. I really uh, recommend people read that. Uh, it's a short read and it's really, really good. <laughs> I really enjoyed reading it. Uh, We're going to link to it in the show notes. uh, So I really recommend that our listeners read that. You gave a really good example of how your faculty treats disagreements. Can you recount that to us now? I think it's a really good basis for the rest of our conversation, actually. (laughs) Well, you're referring to our department. Yes. Well, we have lunch together every week. And and the main function of this um, is that it forces us to understand each other as human beings first and proponents of particular philosophical positions second. Um, And so this has enabled us to 
not only get along in the minimal sense, but actually to be friends and, and work together in a very productive way. Um, and this actually is a tradition that predates my even being hired here. Um, and so, so, you know, go, going back before I even got here, the department consisted of some more conservative types and some more liberal types or progressive types. And they had worked out this idea that if we have lunch together regularly, then we'll we'll always be able to relate to each other as individuals and then treat disagreement about ideas as that, a disagreement about ideas, without it becoming an opportunity to demonize the other person or to pigeonhole the other person and, and as some uh, representative of a thing as opposed to being his or her own person. And then, you know, that's a tradition that I and everyone else who's been hired since has inherited and, and, and embraced. And so we continue this. Um, I, I can't take credit for it, um, but I've continued, you know, we've continued to do it ever since. And it's, I think it's exemplary uh, because I've been in departments where it's not like that at all. Um, and many departments uh, don't have anything like that. And they do think of disagreements as necessarily personal. And I, I think that's that gets in the way of productive exchange of ideas. If you want an exchange of ideas to have any productive outcome, then it, it's going to have to be at the intellectual level, not, oh, you're a horrible person and I hate you. That, that conversation is not going to go anywhere. And just to back up a little bit, uh, in your article, Free Speech and the Function of University, you actually define free speech. Um, I find it interesting that you begin your definition with what it is not before you get into what it is. Um, can you tell us what your definition is and what it is not? Well, what it's not, I mean, it, there's all sorts of things we do with words that don't count as free speech. If I'm a mob boss and I order one of my subordinates to go assassinate one of my rivals, then when I get arrested for murder, I, I don't get to say, oh, but your honor, it was free speech. All I did was say the words, go kill Tony. Now that doesn't count as free speech. Ordering ordering uh, a, a murder doesn't count as free speech. And in general, you know, libel and slander have never been considered part of speech, free speech. Um, fraud is not generally considered part of free speech. True threats don't count as free speech. Um, now I can say something, I, I, I can say mean things, um, but that's not the same thing as assaulting or a true threat. Um, so you know, I, you know, my example of literally ordering an assassination is perhaps obvious, but there's a difference between um, you know, saying in a credible way that I'm going to kill you that that's that's generally speaking not regarded as free speech but if i say something like you're a horrible person and i hate you that's protected speech right that's cuz that's just an expression of an opinion right so if if i think such and such a person is a terrible person and i say that that's protected threatening to kill that person is not protected well on the um idea of slander and libel how can you tell the difference between free speech and slander and libel I know uh, it's a bit of a, it might be a hard question, but you're a philosopher. So I want to see what you have to say about that. <laughs> I, I'm a philosopher, but I, I should clarify, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I know. Slander and libel are legal terms. Um, and so I'm not a hundred percent on top of what the explicit legal criteria are. Um, I think, th th you know, th there's, but 
in the law, there's a well-worked-out set of criteria for what counts as slander and libel. Um, so I'd have to knowingly be saying something false with the intent of uh, ruining your character or something, you know, some sort of malice. Yeah, it's more reputation. Yeah, like, um, yeah exactly. So it's... Um, and I know, too, that the standards are different for public figures as opposed to regular people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not going to pretend to be 100% on top of the specific legal threshold for whether it is. But the idea um, that because I said it, it's therefore protected, that's definitely not true. And libel right. and slander, like fraud and threats, are among the things that you could get in trouble for doing. Um, you know, you, you can defame people in a tortious way, and, and that's different from merely expressing a negative opinion about those sorts of things. And you say in your article that, quote, free speech is our surest way to differentiate knowledge from dogma and prejudice, unquote. I think at first glance that might be hard to understand or to agree with for many people because the words you say can contain prejudice that is quite harmful, especially to minority groups who may be more vulnerable in society. Can you respond to that criticism and elaborate on the quotes? Well, if the reason that I'm saying what I'm saying is because of some terrible bias or animosity, forbidding me from saying it isn't going to change that I have those biases or that I have those hates, right? So what's important is, why am I saying this thing? And what I might be trying to say is, you know, here's a class of people that should be treated differently, or here's a class of people that I want everybody else to have the same negative opinion that I do of them. But actually, it's better if that opinion comes out, because that's how other people can see, well, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong with that person. Why, you know, why are you saying these hateful, in other words, other people seeing the bias, other people seeing the animosity, that's the best way for it to uh, be be brought into the light and therefore dispelled. I I guess another way to think about it is, um, if if I have bad thoughts about a person, whether individually or as a member of some group, um, uh, it might be a moral failing on my part that I don't like those kinds of people, right? Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, it's legally protected for me to have negative opinions about groups of people or individual people. Um, so if I, but if you say something like, look, that speech is real offensive, so we're going to have to make it against the law for you to say it. This is the same thing we were talking about at the beginning of the show. If you have the power to prevent me from saying stuff that offends you, then you're the next one to find out that you're going to get in trouble for saying stuff that offends somebody else. In in other words, if the standard is, yes, but that's really offensive, everybody's liable to go to jail now because anybody who says anything uh, could be said to fall under that standard, right? So, you know, if I say something that's, that's, uh, really homophobic, for example, then you can imagine somebody saying, well, that's really offensive and hurtful. So you should go to jail for saying stuff like that. Right. But if that's the standard, then that means then when someone's defending, say, uh, same sex marriage or, or, uh, the, you know, the ability of same sex couples to adopt or something like this, and say, oh, well, that, you know, this, this offends my sensibilities. 
I find this to be hurtful and it's demeaning to my religious sensibilities or something like that, then that now now everybody's getting in trouble. So again, if if the standard is merely offensiveness, uh, then there's no end to it. Um, and everybody and and history actually demonstrates pretty effectively uh, that it's the most vulnerable members of society, the, the the ones who already have the least power and voice in society, that are the victims of restrictions on speech and expression. So if you think that, well, we have to have these restrictions to benefit these vulnerable members of society, these powerless groups, that's 180 degrees wrong because it's the vulnerable, the marginalized who are the most at risk of further oppression when there's speech restrictions in place. I'm interested in the two things some people say the university should be doing that you mentioned in your article. Uh, first, advancing social justice, and second, preparing citizens, presumably to enter the world. Um, I really like that you don't simply discount these two things. Rather, you show how restricting free speech actually doesn't allow those goals to be properly reached. Uh, I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Yeah, well, this was my point in, in framing the essay around what a university is supposed to be doing. Um, you can't... So you might think, well, look, you know, social justice is an important value and it's the university's job to promote social justice. But of course, you can't promote social justice if you don't know what it is. And you can't know what it is unless you have robust philosophical discussion about the nature of justice. Um, And this goes back to the quote you had earlier about dogma, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, is social justice something that we actually know, or is it something that we just repeating back what everybody else says, right? If it's it's to mean anything real at all, and isn't just repeating the dogma that other people feed to you, then that means it has to be the product of some discussion. So if you want to promote social justice, you have to enable discussion about social justice. But that that shows why discussion and inquiry is conceptually prior to promoting any particular value. You can't promote any value at all unless you actually first have a climate which is favorable to discovery of truth about those values. So like, how can I know whether that's a value I should even be promoting, right? If I'm not allowed to have robust discussion about its meaning, right? So whatever it is, preparing students for democratic participation, realizing social justice and equity, whatever it is, those goals have to be secondary to discussion, truth-seeking, you know, the, the debate between ideas, so those are things that the university should be doing. Uh, presumably, some people say that they should anyway. Uh, what do you think are our moral obligations on how to treat one another in a community uh, rather than just a, a community, whether that be a university community, which is what you're specifically talking about in your article, but just communities at large? And why does that not necessarily walk back the idea of free speech? Well, I mean, I, I, it's one thing to say that you shouldn't go to jail for saying mean things to people, but that's not any justification for therefore saying mean things to people. I mean, I, I think that in general, uh, it's better if we treat each other with respect. Um, if we respect other people as individuals, um, that's going to imply certain things about the way we treat other people. And, you know, this goes back to the idea about treating disagreements about ideas as disagreements about ideas, as opposed to uh, instances of demonizing a person because they think something different from me, they must be a horrible person. It's possible, of course, that people could disagree 
um, and also be, uh, you know, good people in other respects. You know, I don't have to agree with you about every single thing in order for, for me to respect you as a human being and to, to, to treat you as a civic equal. Um, so, you know, I, I think that civic equality is an important aspect of liberal society. So that implies a certain mode of treating each other. You know, if it's liberal society, then we have to treat each other as civic equals and not as, as if, you know, there's, you know, the A group, which are the good people and the B group, which are the inferior people. That's just inconsistent with, uh, you know, liberal society. Um, So I think that in the university setting where disagreements not only possible, but actually important because that's how we learn new things is through disagreement. We can't have any productive disagreement if that doesn't also coexist with a climate of mutual respect. But here's the thing. Uh, People often use this idea of respect for others as the rationale for restrictions on speech. But I would argue it goes the other way. To respect other people is to respect their rights to have a different view about things. It's to respect their right to differ. Um, And respecting difference seems to me both completely consistent with liberal society and consistent with the aim of a university of promoting uh, discussion and analysis. Um, We're getting to the end of our conversation today. And before we end our uh, discussion on this topic, I want to go through the three groups you say have specific responsibilities in the university, the faculty, the administration, and the students. And uh, if you could elaborate on that, that'd be great. So first off, we've got the university. Uh, What specific responsibilities do they have? The administration's responsibility? The university. Yes, administration. Well, I mean, minimally to respect academic freedom. So... um, you know, the, 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 uh, the tenure process is certainly a necessary condition for that. I'd argue it's not sufficient, but certainly a necessary step. Um, the university has to back off from responding to popular pressures. If I've, you know, if people, if somebody says, well, you know, Scoble's teaching a class and, you know, he, he had this uh, Hayek guy in there and, and I think that's really horrible. So you, you should really get rid of that guy because he's teaching Hayek in that class. The, the university really ought to just completely ignore any, anything like that. Um, uh, once they've decided that they think I'm worth employing, that implies uh, that you know, they, uh, they've already made a decision about my faculty of judgment. Um, and so 20 years later to say, oh, well, you know, we're going to get, you know, we're going to discipline you for, for, yeah. you know, this book that's offending a number of students. The university can't do that. The university has to respect the academic freedom um, of all the faculty members and of the students for that matter. Faculty members, I, I think here's where it gets a little more interesting. And faculty members have to respect each other's academic freedom, right? So it's one thing to say, and you generally get lots of them. You say, you know, say hey, hey, everybody, don't you think the university should respect everybody's academic freedom? And all the faculty says, yay. But often it's other faculty who are quick to want to trample on the academic freedom rights of their own colleagues. So that's another set of responsibilities. When we get things like uh, groupthink or piling on, bullying sorts of behavior, uh, where one professor is perceived of as being unorthodox and then six other professors all start uh, criticizing or, or demeaning or 
steering students away from you or, um, you know, spreading uh, nasty rumors about you, that, that kind of bullying behavior is really not consistent with a, a culture of respect for academic freedom. And again, you know, tenure protects you for the most part against adverse action by the administration. But it's also important that other faculty respect your academic freedom. So, so there has to be a kind of mutuality, right? Just as much as you would want your, and this is golden rule sort of level of complexity, just as you would want your academic freedom <laughs> to be respected, you must also respect the academic freedom of all of your colleagues. And again, learn how to disagree in a constructive and civil way that coexists with respecting the other person as a human being, as a colleague, even though you don't like uh, the arguments that they're making or the conclusions that they're coming to. And then the third group is the students. You know, a, a lot of the stories that we've been reading for the last 10 years about speakers being shouted down and whatnot is uh, coming from student activism, you know, mobs of students trying to prevent a speech from happening or something like that. So I, students need to... Um, recognize that one of the virtues of university life is the opportunity to be exposed to different points of view, to get out of the bubble that you were raised in. And they should embrace the idea that they might encounter speech that they disagree with. And what they ought to do is take that as a learning opportunity. One possibility is, you know, you were right all along. Um, but by being confronted with this other view, you understand your own position better and you, know, you learn how it's strong, even against something like what this other person's saying. The other possibility, of course, is that you were mistaken. Maybe this other person has a point uh, and you'll learn something new from seeing this other perspective. So either way, it's good for you to get exposed to it. I, I didn't make that last part up. That's right out of John Stuart Mill. I think um, the faculty golden rule that you mentioned is is a really good idea and, and uh, for me obviously true but is there there's a there's a criticism that I hear um, on that specific point where sometimes faculty members can go too far so uh, perhaps they're a professor of of economics and they spend 30 minutes of their lecture talking about something completely unrelated to economics that might even be offensive to some people in the classroom, like their political views or whatever has nothing to do with the, with the content of the class. Is that where faculty has to like another faculty member like can step in and say, this is not right. Or a student could go to the administration and say, this is wasting my time basically. And, and on top of it, I'm, I'm, it's really offensive. Sure. Although I wouldn't frame it necessarily in terms of the offensiveness part. I'd frame it in terms of mm. like failure to fulfill your professional obligations part. Mm -hmm. Right. So like if, if I went into class, like, you know, if I started, like people say something like, um, like, like, let's say it's an organic chemistry class. Okay. But the professor goes on for 40 minutes about, uh, you know, Israel and Hamas or something like that. That's just completely inappropriate, regardless of what the professor's position actually is, because it's an organic chemistry class. And the professor has an obligation to be, you know, teaching organic chemistry not necessarily weighing in on foreign affairs. Okay. But if I teach an international relations class or a political philosophy class or a class on the history of Middle East relations, of course it would be appropriate to spend 40 minutes on, on that conflict. So I think it's a matter of like, wh what is my job here? Right. And I think a lot of times where pe people are, are doing the wrong thing, it's because they're 
they're, they're, they're sort of overstepping what they even think is their job. Like, so you gave the example of an economics professor who's talking about some social issue that has nothing to do with that class, right? And I, I used an example of a chemistry professor. So, you know, even in philosophy, though, um, it's not always going to be anything goes. You know, if I'm teaching a course on uh, Locke and Hume, for example, it's hard to see why I should do 40 minutes on Hamas there either. Um, so it's like, what, what am I supposed to be doing here? And so I think there's lots of classes where it's appropriate to talk about current social issues, but there's lots and lots of classes where it's just inappropriate to talk about current social issues, not because it's offending somebody, but because that's not what that class is for. You, you understand what I'm, so that's the way I frame those sorts yeah. of things. And so that's partly a matter of individual self-restraint. I think professors just need to, you know, realize that. Like I, the fact that I have a class to teach doesn't give me free reign to go in and just spend 40 minutes ranting about whatever's got me hot and bothered today, right? I have a particular <laughs> job to do. It's teaching this class. Um, you know, if it happened all the time, then I suppose it would not be inappropriate for a department chair or, or a dean or something to talk to that person and say, look, you know, you're, you're not really doing your job here, teaching organic chemistry. That's, you're not, you know, that's not what you're supposed to be doing here. I don't think that would be inappropriate. Yeah. And we've discussed sort of uh, what the, or the responsibilities or obligations of the, of the faculty, the administration and the students are. But as we've discovered talking about book banning, it's not just like freedom of speech is not just a campus. It's, it's easy to just talk about it in the terms of like free speech on campus, but it is in general society as well happening. Um, you know, we, we are we are seeing a lot of censorship um, and, and things like that, and people calling for censorship. If it's not actually practically happening, a lot of people are calling for it at least. What are our obligations as citizens at large, basically, <laughs> when it comes to this to 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 this kind of uh, topic? I, I think to stand up for freedom and diversity. I mean, if if you're calling for if you're calling for censorship, then what you're saying is. Um, you know, I have some sort of absolute monopoly on knowledge and it's okay for me to deny other people the opportunity to examine these issues. And I, there's just no real justification for having that attitude. I mean, I, mm -hmm. it's, uh, again, to, to, to call for an end to discussion, to call for a book to be banned, uh, is to substitute your judgment for the judgment of everybody else. Um, and that's hardly ever justified. Um, so I, I think the, you know, the obligation of a member of liberal society is to say, you know, free speech is a good value. Freedom of expression is a good value. Um, it's good if there's lots of different books to choose from and a wide variety of opinions on various subjects that we can wrestle with. So we've talked about a lot and let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, um, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here uh, on how limiting access to information can be harmful? One of the main takeaways I hope people would come away with is that it's not a left or right thing. Um, both people on the right and people on the left are equally likely to create results contrary to their own values if they push for this sort of ban on books or limitation on speech and expression. Uh, it's, 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 um, 
it cuts in both directions, and it shouldn't even be thought of as a, a left versus right issue. It's um, you know places people that you know book book burning, book banning, censorship, restrictions on discussion. Th- these are all the things that liberal societies have been fighting against for 500 years. And and mm-hmm. I, I would hope people think historically about these sorts of things. And what might look like a good idea in the short term for my own comfort and expedience might turn out to be the sort of thing that's been exactly the wrong move for hundreds of years. I really wish everybody would read uh, Jacob Machangama's book on the history of free speech, um, because he shows really convincingly, going back to you know 2,000 years ago, um, how this never ends up having the beneficial social effects that its proponents think it does. It always ends up making society worse off, making marginalized groups worse off, uh, and and impeding rather than enhancing discussion and you know the progress of knowledge. Thank you so much for speaking with me about this important topic today. I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode is produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Wilkenford. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.